Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Science Fiction, where writers talk about their books, themselves, the creative process, the writing process, current events, you name it. Eventually, we'll probably talk about it. I'm Rob Wolf, and this is the Stick to the Brief edition. Today, I'm excited to be talking with Cameron Hurley about her novel, The Light Brigade, which tells the tale of corporate soldiers fighting a war against aliens who are themselves human but settled on Mars a long time ago. As with all wars, truth and reality itself are among the casualties. The book was named a Best Book of 2019 by Publishers Weekly, and I bet it's going to show up on some awards shortlists. Cameron is no stranger to awards. She has earned two Hugo Awards, the Kitschies Award for Best Debut Novel, And she's been a finalist for the Nebula Award, the Arthur C. Clarke Award, the British Science Fiction and Fantasy Award, and the Locus Award. And she has the distinct honor of being a returning guest on New Books in Science Fiction, having joined me in 2015 to talk about the Mirror Empire. And your dog remembers that episode, and that's why (laughs) your doggy is barking. And the Mirror Empire uh, was the first book in Cameron's epic fantasy series, The World Breaker Saga. And Cameron is with me now via Skype, and it is a pleasure to have you back on the podcast. It is great to be here. Time flies. (laughs) It certainly does. We're 2020. I can't believe it. Yeah. Well, if I'm not mistaken, The Light Brigade is the fifth book since the last time you were on the show? I, I, I think you've had a book Sounds in Sounds right. Yeah, because last year I actually had two books come out. I had a short story collection and then Light Brigade. And then the year before that, I think I had another short story collection, which was Linked Short Stories and uh, Stars Are Legion. So, so yeah, I've had, there's been a couple, I think it's been 11 books in nine years. So it's about a book a year. Well, one of the books that you have written, The Broken Heaven, which is the final book in the World Breaker saga. I can't believe yes. it's actually coming Keep out. It. It's yeah. coming out today, of all <laughs> today. things. Yeah. Here we are talking about, I, I'm like so far behind, we're talking about last year's book, but um, <laughs> it's a wonderful book and I'm excited, uh, I'm excited to talk about it. Great. So let's dive into The Light Brigade. It's about a war as seen through the eyes of a soldier named Dietz. Can you tell our listeners who Dietz is and what the war is about? Sure. Dietz is sort of your run-of-the-mill grunt in the military who signed up to kind of get back at some folks who had destroyed the city where they live. And this was very much a sort of homage to, you know, for those who have are familiar with military science fiction with uh, Starship Troopers, with the Forever War, uh, with the, basically the whole uh, oeuvre uh, is you take, uh, you know, a soldier through and they're bright eyed and bushy tailed and, oh, this is great. And we're fighting for this thing. And and you go through the actual process of war and how they change and the camaraderie of that as well. But just also how they look at the world a little bit differently. And then this has the 
time travel element to it, which is a little bit new and different. But yeah, Dietz is out there thinking that, you know, bad guys need to be gotten. <laughs> so so Dietz and uh, the platoon members, again, uh, signed up, who signed up with Dietz at about the same time. They're also involved in, in looking at, you know, their particular stories. I based a lot of this on, you know, I come from a family who I know a lot of people have joined the military. A lot of my friend cohorts back in high school joined the military, and it sort of mirrors some of their journeys. There were a few of them who, you know, went full on where, you know, thought it was the best thing ever and, and great. And then there were a few who went, oh, wow, I thought I thought I was the good guy, right, going into this. And a lot of their stories and, and things actually actually come out and have been fictionalized here in the Light Brigade as well. So it's it's a really complex issue. It, you know, I've been writing about war and soldiers uh, and, and sort of in that for for quite a long time. Uh, you know, my, my grandfather met my grandmother in Nazi-occupied France, so he was an American GI. So it sort of has always suffused my life, and this was my chance to actually write a military science fiction novel well, you've touched on a lot of different issues that I want to mm-hmm. get to, I think. So let's start, first of all, with the the science and the title and maybe even the metaphor of light. So light is obviously important in this book called The Light Brigade. Most obviously, it refers to the method of transportation invented by the corporations to carry soldiers to the battlefield. And at first blush, it sounded to me a lot like the transporter in Star Trek, mm-hmm. where people get broken up into particles of light. I'm not actually sure what they're broken up to in Star Trek, but those little those little balls, I pictured something mm-hmm. like that happening. And they get sent around the solar system. But it doesn't just affect their bodies, it also affects their minds. Mm-hmm. I wondered if you could talk just a little bit about the the tech, the idea for it, and how it plays really such an important part in the story. Sure. I really love the idea of, and again, it, it, there is a lot of similarity, I think, to to the Star Trek, you know, the idea of you're breaking people down into their component parts. With this one, I said, you know, if there really is a hard cap on how fast people can go, right, It's going. we're going to be able to transport people to the speed of light, so let's transform them into light and get them from place to place at that at that particular speed. This was the way that I conceived of, okay, this is how they're going to be getting soldiers to and from very near fronts, right? Like Mars, uh, Luna would be another fairly near front. And of course, anywhere, you know, on, on the globe itself. I like that idea of playing with it, of looking at it uh, in a different way. And then I also, of course, because I was messing with light and the speed of things, and you're, what you end up talking also about is, you know the theory of relativity and gravity, and if thing how if things move and how they how they will change space time itself. And I actually read a really great book, uh, Carlo by Carlo Rivelli, called The Order of Time, and another one called uh, Reality Is Not What It Seems. And it's uh, a really fascinating look at how our brains, you know, construct reality, how uh, reality is shaped and and perceived. And again, it talks about quantum mechanics and that whole thing. Um, and the more I got into it, the more I was like, you know, what I love about quantum mechanics is it's probably the closest we have to like observed magic, right? It's like this thing could be anything. These things go. It doesn't follow a lot of. They do not follow a lot of the rules that we think are totally rules. And I really love. I really love that stuff. So that was where a lot of that came from. Was me, you know, diving into the stuff around um, the way that we perceive time and how gravity shifts time itself and how that would affect, you know, the soldiers. So I looked at that and and I wanted to do something that was, again, involved around time travel, like how 
are our brains going to perceive these sorts of moves when you start stretching and pulling, you know, time itself? How do our brains then interpret that, right, is, is I think, something to ask, you know, especially in, you know, something that is considered a, a science fiction novel, is how will our brains, you know, warp and perceive and, and all of that. So, yeah, that was where a lot of those ideas came from. And I wanted to do something that was structurally very interesting and very satisfying once you understood what the actual structure was. The whole idea that, you know, Dietz actually experiences the war out of order is a hell of a thing to come up with. And I think it was very silly of me at the time. I think you're always you're always trying to write something that is way beyond what you can actually do. And so I always get very ambitious. I'm like, oh, I'm going to do this thing. It'll be great. And then I actually got into it. I was like, holy hell, this is hard. Uh, and it was it was structurally, it was the most difficult book I've ever written. And I say that having just, again, The Broken Heavens comes out today. And it took me five years to finish Broken Heavens, the third book in my fantasy trilogy. But this was still structurally far more difficult to pull off. Well, I understood you ended up doing something that you hate to do, which is use an outline. And you also used graphs. Oh, yeah. Could you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, we uh, we went full on math for this one. No, my uh, my agent, Hannah Bowman, uh, is actually married to a mathematician, uh, Joshua Bowman. Uh, he's got a PhD in mathematics, and he actually teaches out on the West Coast. And he was seeing her trying to put my timeline sort of in order one day. And he said, oh, well, this is a... I Hamilton something like a Hamiltonian graph by par I don't know it's in the it's in the back of the book. Anyway, he's like, oh well, I know how to do because she's like, you know, this character jumps out of time onto this timeline, then back to this timeline, this timeline. And he, he's like, okay, well, we can we can chart things through this graph, and he made a graph for her. So literally every time we would be in our idea sessions after that, my agent was like, okay, that's a great idea. Let me run it through the graph. <laughs> And she would run a character. Okay, if they're bouncing here and then they bounce back here, they do this. Uh, and she would run it through the graph. So, you know, when I first started, I had a very general idea, you know, oh, I don't want to take the soldier through the training and then these distinct battles or these distinct events. And then they'll bounce back to the base camp and things will have changed there. So I need to know where the hell everybody is, what timeline everybody else is on and what they've experienced versus what you know the soldier deets jumping through time is experiencing so what i end up doing i end up using a, an excel spreadsheet and saying okay on tab one here is the chronological order of everything as it happens which will be the chronological order of what everybody uh, in Deets' platoon is going how they're going to experience in normal time then i basically started chunking them out and saying okay you know, this particular thing is now going to happen here for Dietz, and this one's going to happen up here for Dietz, and this one's going to happen, and then tracking that and knowing where Dietz was and, and how Dietz's memory worked in that timeline uh, versus how everyone else is dead. You know, we also wrote it out. My agent wrote it out one time, again, just as a narrative, and I wrote it out that I revised what she had because I want to do something different. And then I think that it was really for me, once I moved all of that into that Excel spreadsheet that I can take chunks out, put chunks back in and reorder them and have those two tabs that I could constantly refer to. It's like, okay, well, Dietz has just been through this, but the platoon, now if I look in chronological order, her platoon is going to be referencing all of this other stuff. And I can keep track of that. If it sounds complicated, it is. <laughs> it is. 
I did a video um, and I actually showed um, some of my, I think it was some of my Patreon supporters, all of the graphs and stuff. And in fact, there's a, some of the, some of the graphs are also on my blog of exactly how I like went through the spreadsheets with them. And everyone commented like, what the hell? I was like, I know <laughs> this is not what I got in into writing for but it was very satisfying in the end because i think i read it like three times before we you know sent it off and, and approved it it was very satisfying because you could feel it work and that was a really cool feeling to, to know that we'd gotten it right it sounds like you work very closely with your agent and that mm -hmm. it's great to have an agent who is married to a mathematician <laughs> yes, very useful it sounds like you're not just writing a draft and sending it in. You're working out a piece of the story and then getting advice from your agent. In a way, it sounds like what I've heard of very old school and the old days agents who were also very much editors. Yeah, my agent is very hands-on. In fact, I would, I would say it's actually more like the relationship. It used to be that as an author, you would be a house author. Uh, so a publishing house would take you on. And I think, I'm trying to remember who was saying something like this. Andrew, no, not Andrew, uh, CJ Cherry was saying, you know, she was brought on, I think at some point by Bain Books uh, in the very early days. And they said, hey, hey five, five book contract, write what you want. And we will edit it together and we'll look at it and do it. And it was, it was more, much more collaborative. It was much more about relationships and relationship building with editors then because editors weren't leaving all the time and there weren't mergers all the time. And you had a little bit more stability. And that's kind of some of this, some of these newer agents, I feel like in the last, I'd probably say 10 years or so have been much more proactive when it comes to editing, because I think it's gotten so competitive in the, the writing field that in order to make books really stand out, you want to be hands-on, you want to be able to have an author that you can work with. And just Hannah in, in particular is uh, very much, she likes to be involved from the, from the very, very beginning. My first agent, again, she's my second agent. My first agent was very much just write, write me a book and I would, you know, write the book, send it off. I might get back a page of some, insights or notes like you know here's a couple ideas and I would make the little changes and then she would go off and submit the book to everybody and then once I had been through the experience of being edited quote-unquote uh, the publishing experience realizing how hands-off everyone was it was let's push it through the system as fast as we possibly can and I said I'm not going to learn anything as a writer from editors, because they're all overworked, they all have things to do. There are very few editors now that really put a lot of time and effort uh, into their manuscripts. Uh, Nava Wolf, uh, who was formerly with Saga Press, she's been known to do a ton of editing, but most of the editors really don't. They're really, really stressed for time. So I said, you know, when uh, Hannah actually came to me and uh, my agent, and she said, I am a very hands-on agent, I might be too hands-on for you, but I really am very good at structure. I like to be involved from the very beginning, um, and I like to work on projects together. And we both have very strong personalities, which works out in some ways, because when she tells me something and I disagree with it, it's I'm okay with arguing back and saying, nope, this is the way I want to do it. I'm the writer. I'm the decider. And other times, you know, where again, where she will tell me something and I'll be angry at it, and I'll be upset, and then I will sleep on it and come back and yeah, be like, yeah, Hannah, you're right. Because we're both trying to 
create the best books possible. Uh, and we're both very invested, right, in, in the career itself, right, especially as a younger agent. So the idea is you want to grow, right, a, a stable of writers. You want to grow up with those writers and uh, make them successful, and you'll be successful. So, yeah, it is. It's a much more collaborative than almost any other folks I know of. I think, you know, there, I, I can think of maybe two or three other agents who really put in that that sort of uh, time and attention uh, and and many others are like, eh, you know, I don't either. I don't want to it, put all that you know effort into it, or it's just not their wheelhouse. They're like, I know how to sell books, and I know what works, so I'll give you a page. But either you get it or you don't, and then you know we have to we have to move on. So I was very lucky in that you know this particular relationship so far. You know we've been working together seven years, and and my, I feel my books have steadily improved. Uh, you know over that time. So luckily for us, you know, the the relationship definitely seems to be working pretty well. You make reference to other science fiction writers. There's outright references to Frank Herbert. There's also reference to a Lord Tennyson poem, The Charge of the Light Brigade. Mm -hmm. And that's something I'd heard of. I didn't know it was a Lord Tennyson poem, but then I looked it up and I saw it was about a failed military action from the Crimean War. Can you talk about the connection between Tennyson's Light Brigade and your Light Brigade? Well, for me, it's very much, you know, again, harkening back to that whole idea of people following orders and doing things without there maybe being a great reason for it and it's all this death uh you know i probably have watched gallipoli you know too much as well like all of these people running off doing this thing for either they don't know why or for it for it's actually a terrible reason or there's a miscommunication they're not even supposed to be there and just this sort of waste of time and talent and life that i see in a lot of the military operations that just are bloodbaths and a lot of times you'll look back and go why were we doing this what was the reason for it and i think it mirrored a lot of Dietz's journey right of looking at that like yeah i'm the glorious we're the glorious light brigade and that's why i think they they kind of snicker you know a couple of them because of course the light brigade failed in the in the poem um but they look at themselves as light brigade because of course light you know they they travel by light and all of that so yeah, it was it was certainly a play on that and just a play of uh, on that emotions and stuff, uh, you know, with that particular poem. You know, are we what are we celebrating tragedy, celebrating heroics, pretending that things are heroic when they're really not? Well, your book really makes clear that wars are built on stories, mm -hmm. stories that armies tell their soldiers and that corporations or governments tell soldiers to get them to do things, to believe in things. But finding the truth in that becomes really hard. In the Light Brigade, the corporations, rather than patriotism, use a common enemy, the Martians. Mm -hmm. And Dietz goes on a journey to find what is true among all the lies. What do you think the key is to finding a truth that... <laughs> Well, it transcends these kinds of stories. I mean, the, if yeah. those in power are going to tell stories, how can those out of power see through them? You know, if the powerful were interested in us being able to do that, we would do it. In Finland, they have a very good program teaching students and growing up because they're right next to Russia. You know, how do we how do we think critically for ourselves? How do we find information? How do we 
interrogate, you know, sources. As a historian, that was one of the things I had to, uh, I had like a whole course on it, is you have to understand the era that his, the historian is writing in, the, their personal biases or things that they may not be seeing. You're always reading everything and filtering it through the lens of, you know, your, your critical thinking. In the United States, we don't teach a lot of critical thinking. We are... I want to say victims are of our own emotions. Uh, and we aren't sure how to kind of take those things apart and take those stories apart because we haven't been told how. And that's very that's very purposeful, right? It's very purposeful. You want people to be led around by their emotions. Fear, of course, is a very good one. Fear and hate uh, are, are used to move people a lot. And I don't think that we learn quite a, quite enough about how we are being pulled around and manipulated and we don't step back. We get angry and we click and we yell and we throw stuff and we pick up our guns and do the thing. And we haven't been taught any differently. And that's that to me is, you know, we all want to say on an individual level, well, how do we do those individuals? Well, sure, we can practice critical thinking. We can understand, you know, I work in marketing and advertising. That's my day job. I understand how I'm being, how I'm a manipulator, right? In the communications that I make as a marketer, telling you that you need things that in fact you don't really need at all. I know, you know, what those, what those particular triggers are. And I know them because I also understand that they work on me. And there is an awareness that I think we all really need to have going, okay, I can see how and why I'm being manipulated. But I don't think it's going to be solved at a personal level. I think this is one of those big things that has to be done at a community level, at an institutional level, and that's teaching critical thinking. That said, if I knew the answer, I would be making a bazillion dollars <laughs> as, a, as a contractor trying to fix things. But I would I would also say you know, a lot of people don't want to fix things, right? We all want to pretend that the reason that we got into World War II and got everybody all excited about it is because Hitler was bad and was putting people in concentration camps. That was not the reason. The reason was that Pearl Harbor was bombed. The U.S. did not want to get into the war. They had absolutely no interest whatsoever. Why should we help Europe? We hate the Europeans. We left Europe. And I think it's a convenient story we tell ourselves afterwards of the reasons we got into war. The Iraq uh, war is another great example. We all have these ideas and we pretend that, oh, yeah, this is how it was. And it's like, no, it wasn't. If you actually look at history and talk to the people who were actually there, it was not at all that. So I also think that there's a measure of us rewriting reasons that we did stuff. And I think I see you see that all the time. It's like everybody, you know, everyone in Germany insists they weren't a Nazi, right? <laughs> you know, well, it wasn't me. It wasn't me. As history changes, you know, our kind of look, we look back and go, hmm, I don't know. So, yeah. So I think a lot of it, you have to teach critical thinking. And I, I just don't know that that's something we're interested in doing. I was actually just looking at uh, statistics for they were saying the number of folks actually going to the field of history and studying history is at the lowest it's ever been, which, of course, to me is horrifying. I've been trained in history. That's how I get a lot of perspective on, again, news that I see now. And this is very same tactics, right? Lots of the same tactics for getting people to use fear and hatred to divide people so you can get more, you know, because the rich people get richer, poor people get poorer. Um, very much the same. And I can see those patterns because I have this historical background and we don't teach history and people aren't getting into history and they you know don't want to look to the past because there's no they can't see the benefit in it and i do you know i do worry about that the more capitalist driven that we are 
people only look at the value of something like a social science as how will it make me money? And the answer is it's not going to make you money. <laughs> it will do a lot of other things for you. It's, it's going to teach you a lot of great stuff, but is it going to make you a hedge fund manager and make you rich? No, it's absolutely not. And because we value, we value rich over everything else, literally everything else right now, everything. I mean, it used to be being super rich was considered a little bit obscene. Like you didn't want to talk about it because it was your hoarding wealth. That was not a virtue, right? Especially as, you know, Christian nations and all, oh, you know, it was, it was just not considered cool. And now we are very much, uh, you know, how, how can I make the next app, you know, that makes me a billion dollars, but we don't say, how do I make the world a better place? How do I, you know, improve the state of humanity, you know, what's the legacy I'm actually leaving behind? It's, I just need to die with the most toys, but I'm like, well, we're still going to die. But anyway, you're getting me off on tangents now. Now I'm just, I see I could rant forever. You read the book, so I could go on and on. But yeah, we have a lot of work to do. And I don't know that it's work that we as a society or certainly uh, our government uh, wants, uh, wants to do because to educate us means that we are going to be less easy to control. People who are less easy to control are going to vote more <laughs> and they are going to buy fewer things. So, Well, I'm glad to give you the audio real estate to say all that because in a way you're sharing a truth that maybe people don't hear enough of and it gets out through your stories, but it gets out this way, too. So that's an answer, too. Uh, you know, people can listen to Cameron Hurley talk about history and remind us of the cycles that we're sometimes blind to and how unseemly it is to just care about money. <laughs> yeah. Let me ask you a little bit about the time travel part. We've already talked about mm -hmm. the complexity of it. But I want to talk about Dietz's experience of going through nonlinear time. It's very confusing for Dietz, and it's why people are always telling Dietz to stick to the brief. As Dietz starts to get confused, there's the potential for Dietz to become an unreliable narrator, mm -hmm. I guess. Mm -hmm. I wonder, was it challenging working with a first-person narrator who is losing touch, or at least thinks they might be losing touch with reality, and yet keep the reader engaged and following the story? No, because I, I, I felt like I specifically chose a first-person narrator so I could have that close first-person point of view. And the reason I wanted that close person point of view is because I, I do want people to think, hey, what, what is actually going on, right? I, I love mysteries as well. Like, so I read science fiction a lot. I read fantasy a lot. But I also read a lot of mysteries and thrillers. And as human beings, mi we find mysteries really fascinating. And if there's a central question, you know, again, is this character nuts? Is this actually time travel? But if it is actually time travel, how does that work? And if, it, if it's time travel and how does that work? How do all of the, do the, all of these timelines really match up? Or are they alternate timelines? Are they, you know, whatever. I feel like that central question, which is the same question our narrator has throughout, as Dietz has throughout, that's also going to be the question that is shared by the reader. So no, I didn't. I didn't find it difficult. But I, but and here's the reason. Also, I didn't find it difficult. <laughs> it's not the way I usually write. Again, I had to write an outline. But I had to know: is it true or is Dietz an unreliable narrator? I had to know as a writer. 
so that I could write it correctly. Um, where sometimes, you know, I, I consider myself sort of a gardener writer and I will just be like, I don't know what's happening. I'll figure it out. And that would have taken way longer to make that work. Um, but when I knew, you know, going in, okay, this is, this is actually what I want it to be. I think it was, this was, this is actually the book, the first book I've ever written, the first, the only one since, cause again, I've had another one out after that actually I wrote the book that was in my head. I wrote the book I wanted to write. Like you hear that a lot from writers where they're like, oh, you know, I wanted it to be this or that or the other thing. And, oh, it was in my head. It was so much better. This, I really got to the end. Again, I finished that third read through and I was like, that was it. That was what I wanted to say. That was how I wanted to say it. That was damn good. Good job, Hurley. <laughs> Whereas a lot of these, I'm like, ah, fuck it. I'm throwing it out. I just want to ship it. Just get it away from me. But this one, I, I did. I felt like all of these deliberate decisions and all of the ways that I had to stay on track with the structure and stuff, I really wrote the book that, that I really wanted to write. Well, you're very thoughtful about science fiction and about your career and the business of writing. On a recent episode of your podcast, which, which is called Get to Work Hurley, folks, so everyone should subscribe, you made clear that you want to be in dialogue with the science fiction canon. You said, it's not enough to write a great adventure. I want to create work that moves the genre that people will talk about years from now. And you say you think about that whenever you talk about your next project. Mm -hmm. So how do you think The Light Brigade moves the genre? Uh, Light Brigade was uh, very much writing a military science fiction for this particular point in history. Technically, we're supposedly almost out of Afghanistan after 19 years, but 19 years, man, in Afghanistan. And of course, now we have to make up wars with other people because we're so bored and have so much money that we don't know what to do with. But it was very much about, I wanted to take these sort of classic, we had very classic science, military science fiction novels, again, the Forever Wars, the Starship Troopers. Starship Troopers is rather fascist. And you look rather fascist, quite fascist. And you look at Forever War, and it was, I believe it's Vietnam War. It's Joel, yeah, Joel Haldeman, Vietnam War. And I was trying to think of something. I think the, the last one was, I think, Old Man's War, which is, what, 2005 or so? Which is really, people go, that was like the touchstone for military science fiction. And I said, you know... Since then, we've been embroiled in all of these different wars. You know, we're seeing rise of nationalism. We're seeing the rise of the plutocracy. I mean, it's always been there, but it's it's really becoming a block now. It's it's going to be more and more and more difficult to turn that around here pretty quick. And I wanted to then say, okay, you know, based on all these things that we you know we've been dealing with the last fifteen years, I want to write something that. Is that is a, is a natural progression, right, from those canon books in in uh, that subgenre? And I think again, I think a lot of people, especially people who you know have read those books, get a little bit more out of it, right, because they see it as it's a continuum. It's a, it's in conversation. I don't want to say continuum. It's in conversation with other books about war in the genre that deal with very specific points in time. I mean, you take those books out of those points in time, and they're you know very they'd be very different. And this one is absolutely a, a book that from, that is from a very specific point in time. So yeah, so that's that's sort of what I saw it as. It's a it's a one that was in conversation with you know some of those touchstone books, which one could say that's arrogant, but it's just uh, it's just something I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. 
Well, now I want to talk about the glamour of the writing life. <laughs> and and what I'm referencing really is this recent blog post you did that was very frank about the fact that making ends meet, even if you're like yourself, a clear and complete success as a writer, you're venerated and respected, you're a bona fide expert that people turn to and thousands of people read and you've won awards, but making ends meet doesn't always work. You know, we talked about money not being all important, but it is important. It has a certain, up you know, to a certain point, yeah. up to a certain <laughs> point. Yeah. And so I wondered if you could talk about that. I mean, you said it was either in that blog post or maybe it was in the uh, your m- most recent episode of your podcast. You said something like, it's weird to exist as this venerated figure in the specific space of science fiction, but I still have trouble paying for health insurance, something like mm, that, you mm-hmm. said. Oh, yeah. And, you know, my reaction was it just made me mad. You know, I thought we need good yeah. writing. We need good stories. We need writers like you. We enjoy them. They, they add value to our life, not just intellectual, but emotional pleasure. And yet we don't let people make a decent living at it unless they're huge best-selling authors or their books get made into movies or... It just seems wrong and unfair. Yeah. Life isn't fair. <laughs> you know, I, it, it's hard. It, and honestly, we, we, you know, I, we, we existed. We managed to make it 10 months when, from the time I was laid off from my last job. So we, we were able to sort of barely scrape by for about 10 months. And then it was, you know, we started, yeah, having to dig into the credit cards, mainly, again, because health insurance costs more than my mortgage. It's uh, $850 a month for mortgage or for the um, health insurance, it's 827 for my mortgage. And the health insurance, that does not include like the actual cost of medication, that would probably another $300 a month. So what you're looking at is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It's stupid. It makes no sense. Uh, we're the only developed nation that any, I mean, literally I talk to people like in Sweden and uh, Spain, you know, they're like, oh, you should live, Cameron, you would live like a queen here. I'm like, yeah, probably. And we're the only developed nation that has this problem because we don't choose to spend our money on that. We choose to spend, you know, 90% of our budget on defense, defending from people who want jobs, I guess. But what I see a lot is this idea where folks say that they are full-time writers, but what a lot of times what you end up hearing is, well, my spouse has health insurance and my uh, you know, is working basically working for health insurance, or I have a trust fund, or I had an inheritance, or you know, again, my my you know significant other makes a hundred grand a year or whatever. And you know, we're just not in that position. You know, my spouse, uh, for various uh, health reasons, I end up being the one you know who is the breadwinner, and it's me, and then there's my spouse, and then we have guardianship of his grandmother, and I have three dogs. <laughs> And it's like you start put adding all that up with health insurance and with all that stuff. I mean, it's the it's the cold equations, right? But again, it, cold equations has its own problems, and the problem with this one is is also is that the equation that includes that those healthcare costs is bullshit. Is is uh, something that we have decided that we will live with, which is untenable in in any other developed nation. That said. As noted, it's, you know, publishing isn't fair. I think there, there used to be a time when books were the primary form of entertainment where, you know, you couldn't stream binge stuff all the time and you didn't play. Like with me, what did I watch? I watched The Witcher on Netflix, I think, like three times. So what is that? Like 32 hours of television? 
probably more than that. Um, so, and then, you know, there's the games and there's this and that. So everyone's time is finite and our attention is finite. And it's, it's like, oh, it's cool. I've sold, you know, fairly, fairly decently, but stuff that I, the, the, the sales I'm making that are fairly decent would have been fireable offenses for people and for, you know, authors in the eighties, they would have con- canceled your contract and said, you're not moving enough books because there it was just like, it was expected that you're going to move 80,000, a hundred thousand books because that was all people did. It was in the grocery store. It was there, you know, and there were only so many. So it's a, it's a very different landscape right now and that's why a lot of times I talk to people and I say and again like this last 10 months even I wouldn't have made it that far without Patreon which is a subscription service where people can sign up I write a short story a month they get a short story and it's it's dollar or three dollars and you get some extras or five dollars you get other extra stuff and that to me you know it's funny while when I when I was doing that especially because that was you know paying rent it was paying insulin it was paying all these things and I felt like a pulp writer. I was like, this is what it must have been like in the day when Robert Howard was like, oh crap, or Ray Bradbury, I need to pay the rent. And so I'm going to write a short story. And it was a different sort of market, right? It was the, they were, they could, you know, they were selling, you know, 100,000 copies or whatever of these magazines. Uh, and so they could afford to pay you enough to pay your rent. And now I look at that and like, oh, Patreon is now a very similar sort of, uh, thing it's it's looking at ways we can adapt and create new forms and streams of income because we're not going to make it most of us right there's the one percent most of us are not going to make it on just the books you have to find other ways and different ways because the world itself has changed the entire market has changed so yeah life isn't fair but I I also look at it as publishing and writers have had, just like with everyone, the world is moving so fast, it's changing so fast, it's difficult to adapt because there are all sorts of other things. Here's my thing, especially as I'm, again, doing marketing and advertising, content is huge. It's, it's huger than ever. Pe- they need people to write things. They need people to write articles and websites and blog posts and games, right? all these games and all these TV shows, the script writing, you know, I've been working on some stuff with producers and it's all about diversifying and also putting yourself and your particular talents into those other media as well. It's just very rare that you're ever going to see someone who's making it a hundred percent on novels. So, and that's just, it's a different market and also some poor choices about healthcare. Someone said that they said, uh, I was actually talking to somebody and they said, yeah, you know, it's so weird. It seems like Canada has, and uh, the UK have way more full-time writers. And I'm like, well, yeah, <laughs> they have health insurance. <laughs> if we would have had health insurance, I think we would have made it. So I'm, I'm that close, right? Every time I'm like, oh, we're so close, so close. So maybe a few more books, maybe some movie deals. <laughs> some movie deals. <laughs> yeah, and it's extraordinary, too. I mean, for the premium and the price you pay for health care, it's not like it's all solved anyway. You know, oh. there's still... No, it's it's uncertain and yeah, the you don't bills know deductibles, are deductibles, mm-hmm. right? You may some, yep. some things may or may not be covered. There's no uniformity. Yep. It's not even like that buys you peace of mind, even when you scrape yep. it together. Yeah. Well, it sounds like Patreon is sort of the version of the pulp magazines for the gig economy. You're mm. mm-hmm. you're 
atomized. You're doing it yourself, though. You're sort of your own editor and publisher and writer. You're doing it all in-house. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which, again, is uh, a lot of people self, other people do self-publishing, like, on Amazon itself. That I'm not so much interested in. I love the idea of actually being able to... It, it almost feels collaborative or interactive when I'm with my fans um, on Patreon. Because we have a Discord channel. like So it's like it's like you have your own little community. And it's almost like, again, you're writing for... You're really writing directly for your readers. Um, and it's like, I think we have... How many do we have now? 1,100 or 1,200 people. Um, but you can have a small... And that's the thing, too when you are working in niche stuff, you can have a thousand true fans and, and you can get to that. You can make a lot more money if it's just you, right? Cutting out, you're basically cutting out the entire um, middle portion. Um, that said for stuff like books, which are just so much longer and more involved. Um, it's not something, you know, I would, I would be interested. I'm not terribly interested in self-publishing and my books are just weird. Some of my books are very weird. Um, they don't fit neatly into a lot of the self-pub categories but these true fans right my true fans are like oh we love this weird shit and so they are more than happy to support me directly so that's been really nice well fantastic it's been fantastic talking to you fantastic hearing all your thoughts and thank you so much for coming back on the show oh for sure yeah thanks uh, again so much for having me I've been talking to Cameron Hurley about her novel, The Light Brigade, which was published by Saga Press. Thanks for joining us today, everyone who's listening. And I want to give a thank you to at Hugo underscore book underscore club, who urged me to read The Light Brigade in the first place. And did you know you can subscribe to this podcast? You can even leave a review, which is a wonderful thing to do, particularly if you have nice things to say. Our theme music is by Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com. The person who wears the hat that says editor-in-chief and founder of the New Books Network is Marshall Poe. And the person who wears the slightly smaller hat with the slightly smaller visor that says co-editor is Leanne Wilson. And I'm your host. I don't usually wear a hat. I'm Rob Wolf, author of The Alternate Universe. I'm on the world wide web of sorts at robwolf.net and on the Twitter machine at robwolfbooks. And Cameron, what's your website and how do people find your Patreon? Sure, yeah. My Patreon is uh, patreon.com forward slash Cameron Hurley. So you just look for my name at Patreon. Uh, you can also catch me on Twitter or uh, on Instagram. That's at Cameron Hurley. And that is Cameron with a K or my website. And in fact, we are actually revamping the website in the spring but until then uh, you can find out what you need at cameronhurley.com well as a as a marketing expert i can't wait to see how you revamp your website i'm excited yeah the web guy was excited too um because it is going to be uh, a little different well everyone now go out and buy all cameron with the k's books and bye for now <laughs>